Today we're continuing in our series of messages on the life of David. David, a man after God's own heat, so the bulletin says. But I will tell you, that is not incorrect insofar that David experienced a lot of heat. Saul was after him constantly, and today is really no better in many ways. But we have a great opportunity to spend time in the Word of the Lord. And one of the reasons for preaching out of the Old Testament, and there are many, we're in 1 Samuel 25 today, so please turn there. One of the reasons for preaching out of the Old Testament is to help you understand how to read your Bible. I think I'm correct in saying there are 49 books of the Old Testament and 27 in the New for a total of 66. And so a good almost two-thirds of the Bible is the Old Testament. We need to know as believers how to read and interpret and apply the Old Testament. And so hopefully this will help you in your Bible reading and understanding of Scripture as we go together through these stories. Plus, there's so much here for our own edification and hope and comfort. With that said, please hear now the word of the Lord as we read the entirety of chapter 25 in 1 Samuel. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing. All the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please get whatever, give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. Nabal and Nabal, <coughs> excuse me, answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. Now listen to David. <laughs> And David said to his man, men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. 
But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as they went, uh, we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, and all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seas of a parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. She said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so uh, to the enemies of David. And more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried, got down from the donkey, and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let... This present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as uh, from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me from this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. 
For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning, light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. And when the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, son of Laish, who was of Galim. This is God's word, and a rather lengthy one. <laughs> Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. It is to us a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And we need both. It's easy to get tripped up and fall in this world, and it's easy to lose our way. And it's so easy for us to follow the dictates of our own heart without giving serious thought to who you are and what, have you what you have called us as your children to be. So we pray that as we spend this time looking at this story given to us in Scripture, you would help us profit from this time by speaking to us very personally about the stuff in our own lives. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a remarkable story. And it is uh, powerful and profound in many, many ways. First, let's think about the characters we meet in this story. It's always interesting to meet interesting characters, and we have them here our writer quickly introduces us to two of them. But not by first, first by name, at least not for the man. His home is in Maon, and his work is in Carmel, sites in, uh, in the deep south of Judah, roughly eight miles south of Hebron. He is prominent and wealthy, 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. Currently, he is holding a prop profitable and festive but especially profitable, sheep-shearing time in Carmel. Only now are we introduced to Nabal by name. The Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, is right. This way of introducing Nabal 
is precisely on target because Nabal's possessions precede his own person and name. His life is determined by his property. Nabal lives to defend his property and he dies by his property and he dies in an orgy enjoying his property. Only after being told of his riches are we then told his name. In other words, Nabal constructed his identity as a person upon his property, his wealth, his goods. And that's always a temptation for people who possess those things, is to define ourselves and our station in life and our place before each other based upon our possessions of what we own, what we have. And we feel, perhaps because of that, either superior to others and uh, enjoy others feeling inferior to us based upon our professions, I mean possessions, and our professions too, but... But this, this extends today as much as any other time in the history of the world. Jesus uh, re, re, uh, tried to help us remember that a man's uh, life does not consist in the possessions that he has. You are not what you have. You are not what you own. And sometimes we need to take a hard, long look at our short life and ask ourselves the question, am I kind of, sort of, starting to make what I own and what I possess my real God, my real Savior, the one who I get hope and life from. It's called idolatry. It is taking something God has created and elevating it to the level of God himself and therefore rendering God obsolete and your possessions become that thing which you worship, get your identity from, and that is exactly the sin that destroys us. It destroyed Nabal, ultimately. Uh, this fact doesn't encourage our hope when we think about this story because Nabal's name in Hebrew means fool. To call someone a Nabal is to call him a fool. Now perhaps there's some variety among fools, but Nabal is in a is a thick-headed knucklehead. He's a clod. Biblically, however, he's worse. Isaiah 32, verse 6, shows that a Nabal does not merely lack manners. He is a spiritual, moral, and social disaster. We all remember that uh, psalm that says, the fool has said in his heart, no God. Therefore, rebelling and at the same time defining his own life on his own terms. In the same breath that our writer mentions Nabal, he also names his wife Abigail, one of my heroes in Scripture. What a wonderful woman this woman is. Uh, and this couple is surely a study in contrast. The writer himself puts it succinctly in verse 36, Ab Abigail has good sense and good looks, but Nabal literally is hard and nasty. And don't think our writer is being uncharitable toward Nabal. If you will look, uh, he's simply telling the truth. Nabal's servant, his enemy, his wife, all agree, and the narrator has correctly assessed Nabal. Indeed, Nabal's own words, verses 10 through 11, vindicate the writer's estimate. Nabal's crabby response came in an answer to David's request through his messengers. 
David was requesting some provisions from Nabal's abundance. And as David saw it, Nabal may have had far fewer sheep to shear had not David's men provided voluntary protection of Nabal, his flocks, and his men. Now, there's a tendency here and a temptation to read this in a mafia kind of way to say you're paying me protection money. But in reality, they needed that protection because of bandits in the wilderness where they were would often uh, raid and, and take away. And so David and his men had provided protection for a good number of years for this particular guy. And so therefore, when he responds that way, ingratitude doesn't come close to saying what is actually being communicated. Um, David and his men also never plundered Nabal's flock themselves. And of course, Nabal had never asked for David's assistance, but it was only right to expect a wealthy man like Nabal to show some kind of appreciation for services rendered. Nabal, as noted, said no, but not so simply. He called David a no-account runaway, slave, and his men a bunch of nobodies who had no right to my bread, my water, my meat, especially mine, he tells us. There's only one way, as conventional wisdom has it, to deal with an obnoxious mulehead knucklehead, and in a word, it's called the sword. And so David said to his men, strap on your sword. David had only one thing in mind. You have insulted me. And I'm sure David, just like the rest of us, you know, you don't take kindly to insults. And maybe it had inflamed his temper a little bit. And he simply said, nobody talks to me like that. So guys, strap him up. We're going to go take him out. You can't be uh, treating the uh, heir apparent to the throne that way. And the problem could be handled quickly. He has no army to defend him. And we were apt to think that Nabal now has a problem, but of course we're wrong. David has the problem, and he has just now created it. He does not yet know it. And so as we go throughout the outline in our bulletin, we're going to see the problem, and that's Nabal's folly. We're going to see the turning point, and that's Abigail's wisdom. And then we'll conclude in resolution with Yahweh's vengeance. So David, uh, it's good to make a couple of observations as we go. The chapter before us is a long narrative with a little narrative that is, with little explanation from the narrator himself, the story is dominated by and carried by direct speech. David, Nabal, then David again, then a servant of Nabal, then David, then Abigail, then David, and there are four statements or speeches by David, but clearly Abigail's speech is the center and core of this particular narrative. It is the hinge and turning point. So first, let's consider restraint. Let's consider the restraint of Yahweh's providence in this particular episode in David's life. By providence, I simply mean the frequently mysterious and always interesting way in which Yahweh provides for his servants in their time of need. And the dominant note of this chapter is that Yahweh, in his timely providence, restrains his chosen king from his own impulsive folly and wrong 
And four times in this, uh, uh, the story confesses Yahweh's restraining action. It does it in verse 26, verse 33, verse 34, verse 39, once in Abigail's counsel, and three times, as it were, in David's gratitude. David, in the post-Abigail time, had the right hermeneutic um, when he said, Yahweh sent you this very day to meet me. But let's get back to the story. Every reader of verse 13 knows what 400 men with swords intend to do. But readers are not told explicitly until verses 21 to 22. David had probably spoken verses 21 to 22 at the time of verse 13. But now David had said, but the writer reports them, as Abigail is about to meet David in order to stress what high stakes are involved in Abigail's mission. If she fails, every male in Nabal's household is done for. They're dead. And so, uh, fortunately, <laughs> for stupid Nabal, he had a very perceptive servant and resourceful wife. The servant told Abigail how Nabal had vented his spleen on David's servants. And by the way, the unsung hero of this narrative is this servant that goes ahead and reports to Abigail what had happened with Nabal and David's men. And so he's sort of an unsung hero of the narrative. But how good David and his men had been to Nabal's shepherds, and how vicious they would surely be toward Nabal's household. And finally, while he was telling all this to Nabal's wife, uh, rather than to Nabal, he's such a brute that no one can say a word to him. But Abigail could do smart things in a hurry. She put together this little uh, picnic basket, which was a huge picnic basket. Bread, wine, sheep, grain, raisins, figs. But she didn't tell her husband. She didn't tell Nabal any of this because she agreed with the servant's estimate of her husband. You know, um, one commentator I read made this statement. He says, when she heard of David's impending attack, Abigail acted quickly and in complete defiance of her husband. Her husband had refused to share my food and insulted David but I, Abigail took a load of food from Nabal's house and brought a blessing like Rebecca another her heroic woman who defied her husband's wicked plan Abigail foiled her husband's folly whatever we might want to say about the husband's headship in the home has to include a consideration of this passage these women were great heroes of the faith and they were heroic precisely when they treated their husbands as the fools that they were. I don't know what you want to do with that. I mean, I mean, I know what you're thinking. You women already know that. I know you know that. I'm not telling you anything new. But that's rather remarkable. I once attended a conference by a famous youth director that came out of Chicago and developed his whole system. His name was Bill Gothard. And um, in this conference, he mentioned abusive husbands and wives, uh, or wives that were being abused by their husband, and he said they should pray and thank God for being able to suffer for the kingdom and not do anything about it. And I'm sitting there with hair down in the back of my shoulder. I'm a new Christian. I'm sitting there with my brother, and I looked at him, and I said, that's just stupid. 
And I said, I'm going to stand up and say, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard anybody say. And my brother said, there are 9,000 people here. He says, what do you think is going to happen? He said, we're sitting here with this long hair, and we've already been told we're homosexuals because we have long hair, and now you're going to stand up and say something else. But her husband was stupid. He's a fool. And she is commended in this chapter, at least by the author of Samuel. And she does so. And so apparently... <laughs> uh, she does an elaborate obeisance. Abigail asked to assume the guilt, though she herself had known nothing of David's emissaries and their request. She first strikes the note of Yahweh's restraining providence in her opening argument in verse 26. And now, my Lord, by Yahweh's life and by your own life, since Yahweh has held you back from coming with bloodshed and taking matters into your own hand, now may your enemies and those seeking to harm uh, my Lord be as Nabal. Apparently, Abigail foresaw that Nabal was going to meet some kind of inappropriate in, or, or appropriate end, but clearly she interpreted her intercepting David as Yahweh's direction indeed. Yahweh had held David back from hasty bloodshed and vengeance, and this is so important because it meant this situation would never prove. Uh, a staggering or a stumbling block of heart to David. That is, he would keep his stability by not being haunted the rest of his life by remorse of conscience because he had bloodshed on his hands out of personal resentment. David confesses that Yahweh, through Abigail, has kept him from a tragic wrong. Abigail's intervention kept David from walking in Saul's sandals, kept him from turning to Nabal's Carmel into another knob where Saul had all the priests of that city assassinated. The rejected king may practice sheer butchery, but that is not the way for the chosen king. Yet the chosen one wanted his gore and would have obtained it had Yahweh not sent him this so-called Savior in skirts. So, through Abigail, the Lord saves David from a danger different from that in the cave with Saul, but nonetheless great. It consists in the possibility that David may take matters into his own hand and thus make himself a master of his fate instead of allowing himself to be guided only by the Lord. David was tempted to take matters in his own hand. And look at the way his God and our God stopped him. Now, you don't have to say this out loud because you may be embarrassed to even think about it. How many times has God saved you from doing something absolutely stupid that would have destroyed you? I can tell you numerous instances in my life where the Lord just put up a wall. He just stopped me from making decisions that would have completely, uh, I wouldn't be here preaching to you today if I'd followed through on many of these so-called ideas I had on my own. I can't find in the Bible ever where it's ever right to take matters into your own hands. In the Bible, that's called a big fat sin. It's called unbelief. It's called self-reliance. It's taking your life and your matters into your own hands without regard to the fact that there is any God who is in control 
who ordains and foreordains everything that comes to pass, who sees his decrees operating in space and time, will occur. And David was to be king of Israel, and God raised up this woman to come and confront him about this situation. And one thing we learn right away about David, he's no perfect man. Not to mention he ends up with three wives at the end of the passage. But think about this. In the last chapter, we, we sort of lauded David because he had every opportunity. There was Saul, you know, in a very vulnerable and compromised position in, in the cave. And David's there, and all he had to do was take a sword, and it's over. And David restrained himself and only cut off a bit of the skirt of Saul's robe, kept it for himself, uh, and even that condemned his conscience. But in the very next chapter... He does exactly what he didn't do in that chapter. Why? Because he's simul ustus et peccator, and so are you if you're a Christian. Well, what are you saying, Pastor Tim? That sounds like Latin to me, or Greek. No, it's Latin. And it means this, a Christian, you, if you are a Christian, you are at the same time simul, simultaneous, ustus, that is righteous, and a peccator, which is a sinner. In Jesus Christ, I am a believer in Jesus Christ, and I wear the beautiful robe of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. But underneath that robe, even though I have a new heart, God's Spirit indwells me, uh, even though the law is being written on my heart by the Spirit, and even though I'm going through sanctification, I am still a sinner underneath. And I declare that to you every week, and... I hope you get it. I hope you understand it. David was as capable, Christians are as capable of doing anything an unbeliever is capable of other than blasphemy. But an unbeliever, a Christian can do anything. And you need to walk circumspectly in your Christian life. You need to be aware of your vulnerabilities and your weaknesses and that there are certain places you don't go and certain things you don't participate because that for you would be disaster. It would do you in, and that's what the Bible's all about. And we're just ridiculously naive if we think any other way. I have seen pastors who I love to hear preach fall into some kind of compromising uh, situation. It's usually sex, power, or money. The unholy trinity in some respects. It's usually one of those three things will undo somebody. And why does that happen? Why does that happen? Because you start believing your own press about yourself or what other people are saying, and you don't realize that you cannot put yourself in certain positions. And David was dangerously close of taking matters into his own hand and destroying Nabal. And he may have deserved it, humanly speaking, but once he places it in God's hands, God takes care of it because God is really the only one who can take care of it. Kind of racing ahead with the story, but it is Mother's Day. And I know that all of you got big plans for that. And you're sitting there going, hurry up and get through. We got a restaurant reservation. Hurry up. So Abigail's mission is a success. We follow her home where she finds Nabal too drunk to hear since. Next morning, when Nabal had recovered from his royal debauchery, by the way, sheep-shearing time was a festival and a feast 
beyond feast and festival. It's when everybody uh, uh, totally uh, enjoyed themselves with the uh, fruit of their labors, overindulged probably in numerous ways, uh, maybe were overserved in numerous ways. But whatever happened, uh, apparently Abigail told him these things. Apparently how he and his men had narrowly escaped extinction and how she had averted it. Ironically, Abigail was Nabal's savior too. Who knows, was it because of a sudden sobering fear over such a narrow escape from David's sword? Or was it because of a greedy apoplexy that begrudged Abigail's too generous of a bribe? He might have been furious that she gave him anything. But whatever it was, his heart died within him and became a stone. That is, he probably had a massive stroke. And the coup de grace was Yahweh's. About ten days later, Yahweh struck Nabal so that he died. The brevity of verse 38 is probably deliberate, as if to say, David, note the simplicity, note the magisterial ease with which Yahweh cares for the matter. How unnecessary are all of your blustering. So the text teaches us how Yahweh rescues his servants from their own stupidity. How he restrains them from executing their sinful purposes. How sometimes he graciously and firmly intercepts us on the road to folly. In the text, of course, Yahweh does this for his anointed king, but Yahweh is not bound to the, up to the biblical text. His mercy is not confined to his special servants. His vigilance over his erring people is not restricted to 1020 B.C. or whenever. What loving hands construct the roadblocks to our foolishness? To our foolishness. Have you ever thanked God for protecting you in this way? Have you ever said, Lord, I was a goner. Thank you for saving me from my own sinful, stupid uh, ways. The, the, the hardness of heart, uh, following the lust of the flesh, the over-desires in the heart to, uh, to be independent and... Uh, find life apart from God. What mercy sends frustration to our purposes? What kindness builds hindrances in our path? It is important that like David, we respond rightly to such episodes of Yahweh's restraining providence. We could hardly do better than worship with David in his own words, Blessed be Yahweh who has held back his servant from evil. Well, the next thing I want to bring to you is the instruction here. Chapter 5, again, must be seen in its larger context. And I've already talked about how chapter 24, David showed restraint. In chapter 25, restraint was shown for him. Uh, and so David, like the rest of us, has to grow. We have to learn how to live out our faith in God's presence. But we are not in control of our lives. And that's just something I want you to understand. You think you're in control. You are not. You are not. And that requires that you live your life with a certain humility. Uh, arrogance and ignorance are kissing cousins, man. <laughs> the more arrogant you are, the more ignorant you are. You don't understand 
We're not in, I'm, I'm just not in control. I'm in control up to a point. I'm free to do whatever I want to. But God is also free to do for me what I cannot do myself. For example, the very fact that you're a believer is God acting against the bondage of your own heart. It is God taking you and showing you mercy when you didn't want it. I, I'll never forget my conversion. I wasn't looking for Jesus. I was looking to get away from him. I'd left home where I grew up in the church, went to church every Sunday. I was sick of church. I didn't like preachers. don't like them much now. But, <laughs> but I decided to leave home, and I went to college, and here's my time to shine. I'm away from home. I'm out of prison. I'm going to party like it's 1999. Is that a Prince song? I know some of you don't even know who Prince is. That is so sad for me to say that. Because he's so much younger than I am. However, and the Lord came and found me. He found me. I was not looking for him. I did not want him to spoil my party. I did not want him overlook. I don't know why I'm talking about this. Somebody needs to hear it. But I didn't want it. I wasn't seeking it. I was trying to find It's just like... I'd crawled down into some kind of basement and I'd fortified the front door with the couch and the desk and the bookcase and I'd locked all the chains and locked all the locks and I'm down in the basement hiding from God and all of a sudden somebody built a fire in the basement, smoked me out of there. I come up out of the basement, I throw all that stuff away, I pull all the locks off the door, I open the door and jump into the arms of Jesus. Why? Because I'm not in control. And neither are you. You are not. If that scares you, <laughs> then run to Jesus. But uh, it's the best thing you can do. Well, David receives more than the merciful restraint of God's providence in this episode. He receives from Abigail assurance of Yahweh's promise. Abigail is both a rain upon David's folly and a goad to his faith. Abigail speaks as a quasi-prophetess, knowing about Yahweh's promise to David and affirming that David will certainly enjoy its fulfillment. There is no doubt Yahweh will certainly make for my Lord a sure house and he will preserve David through all his dangers, though a man is risen to pursue you and to seek your life. The life of my Lord shall not be bundled up in the bundle of life with Yahweh, your God, but the life of your enemies he will sling away from the hollow of his sling. And he did that to Nabal. Abigail joins those who know and attest that David will be king, as Yahweh promises. She stands with Jonathan and even Saul begrudgingly, and her confident word was likely needed. And so what a wonderful thing to see. So what do we take home with us? And I'll do that quickly. Three things I want you to take home with you today as we've considered this rather lengthy narrative. And that's, first of all, saint and sinner. David is a saint, and David is a sinner. And you may say, well, I'm not chosen to be king of Israel or any kind of big deal like that. If you're a Christian, you are a saint and you are a center, sinner. You don't, you, you don't have to be dubbed with sainthood. You don't have to go do miracles and be confirmed by some religious body that you're a saint, with all due respect. Just by virtue of being united with Christ, I am Saint Timothy. I like that. 
It's got a ring to it. But I'm also a sinner. Don't trust your gut. <laughs> Don't trust yourself. Disney movies notwithstanding, do not trust your own heart. Do not trust your own self. We are so easily deceived. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can fathom its depths? But like David, we see him in one chapter looking great, and the next chapter not looking so great. David's quick leap to judge, jury, and executioner does not reflect well on him. But God uses him as well. And so therefore, David was about to make a very, very stupid and bad choice. He was about uh, to make a choice based on his pride and letting his anger get out of hand. And seeing David struggle with pride and anger uh, and making right decisions allows us to see God's grace in his life and most importantly for our lives serves as a reminder of God's preventative grace to us. The story illustrates God's preventative grace. If he wasn't who he was and does what he does, you would be undone. And so would I. Now, we have to learn to trust God with our future. Fully trust Him with our future. Some of you right now are thinking about, or maybe even in the process, of taking vengeance on someone or retaliating for what somebody's done for you. Uh, you're not too interested in letting God take care of it. God knows how to take care of it. God knows how to manage it. He knows how to handle it. It's His to avenge. But you've got to wait patiently for God to fulfill his word. A later anointed son, the son of David, Jesus himself, in 1 Peter 2.23 said, Peter says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And we are called to follow in his steps. And it is often through our laying down in weakness that God works most mightily in our situation. So you think about this today. You think hard and long about this. And all I can say is thank you, holy triune God, for your preventative grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this text, that it's in the Bible, that we have access to it, that we are exposed to the truth through the Holy Spirit taking this word and working in us. And I pray we'll learn that we are not called to live by our wits, but we are called to live fully trusting you. Because you've never made a mistake. You've never done anything wrong. You've never messed up. You've never said, oops, I shouldn't have said or done that. You are perfect. And we can trust that in due time, you will do what is right and vindicate your children. And it may be until Jesus comes when we see that. But we thank you that we will be vindicated in Christ. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give you as people who are grateful for your grace. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.